On September 17, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California, and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast, Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone, Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. They thought he had robbed the deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For the week of Thursday, July 16th, after a three-month COVID-19 grace period, millions of Americans paid their tax returns this week. President Trump paid Roger Stone back for his loyalty with a commutation of his full prison sentence, while states and regions that had previously resisted restrictions to protect from coronavirus are now paying dearly for their lack of action. I'm Clay Aiken for Politicon, and I wonder, what does Roger Stone have on Donald Trump? Is now really the time to worry about cancel culture, and why won't people wear a damn mask? Sally Cohn is a friend of the pod. She's a comedian, an author, a USA Today contributor, and one of the leading progressive voices in America today. Tara Setmeyer is the host of the podcast, Honestly Speaking with Tara. She's a CNN contributor and senior advisor to The Lincoln Project. Emily Jasinski is a board member of the Young America's Foundation and the National Journalism Center, and she serves as culture editor for The Federalist. I'll ask them those questions, as well as the questions submitted by you. And if we're lucky, one of them might even know, how the heck are we going to get along? Can I just start by asking a blanket statement? What the f*** is going on? (laughs) I mean, that's the question for for this week's episode. What the f*** is happening? So we've we've got Roger Stone being pardoned. We've got... States that, you know, I saw this video this week of different people who had been talking about how wonderfully Florida and Texas had handled the pandemic in the early stages in the in April and May. They hadn't shut down and they were really proud of how well they handled it. Well, those very states are now the ones that where it's exploding. We've got I mean, and then don't get me started on cancel culture. It's it's kind of everywhere. So I just want to know what the f- is happening, Emily. You start. What is happening? That's the question. That's all I'm asking this week. (laughs) That is um, open-ended and difficult, but there's so much to talk about. Um, What the the F is happening? I think the way... Oh, you can say fuck here. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can say fuck? (laughs) Go for it! Listen, the world is ending. It doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) Let's just hope my mom isn't listening. Um, Yes. What the F is happening? Um, you know, it's it's really kind of, it's a difficult question to confront because so much of it has to do, obviously there are external forces at work right now. We can talk about the pandemic, um, but I think the pandemic has 
stoked and awakened some tensions that were about to boil over anyway. And now what we're seeing is the acceleration of a process that is heightening divisions in the country, that is heightening economic um, heightening economic processes that also were simmering but are now happening at a, such a rapid clip that everything is being thrown into disruption. And meanwhile, people are experiencing something that they have never experienced in their life. Um, for the most part, unless they were around for the um, Spanish flu pandemic, which most people were not, they're experiencing basically a, a lockdown. Someday I'll be old enough to have <laughs> to have been there. Maybe in your last. <laughs> Sally, is this rock bottom? <laughs> Sally, is this rock bottom? Have we? I mean, oh. have we hit rock bottom to a point where there's nowhere but up? There's no rock bottom yet. <laughs> I, right. I mean, I'd like to say that I was naive enough to to think that we already hit rock bottom at several various mm. points over the last two and a half years. So at this point, I've come to think there isn't one. Um, you know, well, I... <laughs> I I mean, first of all, I, I don't know, I'll say something because it's late and I'm furry headed to begin with. And then the coronavirus <laughs> just has my brain totally frazzled. But, mm. um, you know, what I think we're seeing is um, on top of the like colossal mismanagement of the actual apparatus of our federal government, which, you know, I liked to think right, left or center we all agreed had one function, which is to protect the people. Um, and I thought that meant just more than, you know, with bombs and tankers, but, you know, in, in exact instances like this. So beyond that sort of, you know, that colossal mismanagement that is making the moment exponentially worse, I do think we are seeing a number of moments come to a head. Like, there is no question that we are in the middle of a momentous um, conflagration of just historical realities, one of which is this, you know, wildly runaway inequality, which was already threatening to topple institutions, structures, norms. You know, I mean, had people questioning fundamentals of, for better or for worse, questioning fundamentals of capitalism and how it works and and the role of government and, and talking about racism and sexism and sort of all of these things. So we had this, this mounting massive crisis of inequality alongside of when you're looking at technically, you're saying, oh, well, everything else is working, but this, it still isn't. So what's wrong? Um, but also I think we're seeing a, um, you know, generational, if not, you know, epoch level questioning of two deep conservative fundamentals, one of which is the lack of trust or faith in science, and the other is the sort of deep uh, resistance to resentment of or downright opposition to the institution of government. We're seeing what those two ideas and ideologies mean when you play them out to anywhere near their logical conclusion. And I think we're seeing a real... Um, titanic level of wrestling with how we come back from the brink or for some how we push those ideas you know continue to push those ideas and push society off a cliff right i mean that this is like you know this is like big clash of ideas and their implications kind of moment that we're witnessing in history 
I hope people okay, well, are so, pouring uh, a, me... a stiff drink after that. Jeez, <laughs> I know, Sally. Right? I mean, <laughs> me... you make me just want to say fuck all of it and just, you know, drink myself into oblivion as the shit goes what we're down. That's doing today. <laughs> I will. Let me. Uh, let me. I let didn't me realize those are mutually job, exclusive I feel like choices. That. I feel right? like that. <laughs> I'm like I don't drink, and I'm about. I feel like I'm about ready to start getting drunk myself. Um, but let me try to give us a little focus because I want to touch on all the things that Sally touched on too. But let's start just a little bit, Tara, with with coronavirus and and kind of as as everything on this podcast tends must be about the political aspects of it because I think what Sally was sort of mentioning is that we generally do believe that there are one or two things if that, um, in this country that aren't supposed to be political. But, you know, the the issue with this virus has sort of been politicized so much that I, as a parent, Sally, I imagine, as a, you know, parents across the country are now in a place where we're wondering, do our kids go back to school full-time? Do they go part-time? Do they not go at all? And I don't know that any... First of all, tell me what you think. <laughs> and is there is it possible that anyone in this government or in the public sphere at all is giving us simply the facts and not any political spin when it comes to what's best for our kids, what's best for our teachers, or has everything become so politicized that it doesn't matter whether someone's giving facts or not? You're going to hear, you're going to see Fauci being trashed by the White House right. or by people in the White House. I mean, what the is going on? That's my question again. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to coronavirus, <laughs> um, what's happening is we have a government that doesn't give a damn about the safety and health of the American people, of our school kids, of our healthcare workers, because the president of the United States has such a fragile ego that it took a bunch of his his minions to tell him he looked like the Lone Ranger and super cool in a mask for him to put on a mask while he was using our... Wait, is that really how they got him to do it? Yeah, well, they con- they had to convince him. <laughs> they had to convince him to do a photo op with our using I'll our soldiers. Well, he himself said that he <laughs> thought he looked cool when he first put one on, kind of like the Lone Ranger. He actually said this in an interview. And then after he went to Walter Reed in what I found to be a rather um, despicable act of political expediency using our wounded soldiers again as a political backdrop for him as a photo op because he still has not answered for the Russian bounty story. Um, but they convinced him, well, where's a place where you can wear a mask and we, where we can get him to wear a mask? They were literally begging him to do this. And so it was Walter Reed. So when he wore the mask and we saw the, the video uh, B-roll of it, you had some of his advisors and campaign people and and the Fox News crowd tweeting out about how awesome he looked and how, you know, powerful he looked and what a leader he looked like. Uh, Joe Biden put a mask on three, three months ago. It's not, this shouldn't be a political statement. Like, you know, you said like the, the politics of this, wearing a mask has turned into some type of us versus them you know, pro, you're, you're, if you wear a mask, that means you're some kind of weakling and you're not for Trump. Like, how did this happen? How did we, how did it become a health issue yeah. that saves people's lives? Something as basic as wearing a mask. It's not exactly asking people to go to war 
or, you know, go work in a in a rivet factory and rationing our supplies. Uh, no, they're asking people to socially distance, stay inside and wear a freaking mask to save lives. And that has turned into what we see today, where you have these crazies arguing with people at Walmarts about wearing a mask and that it somehow violates their civil rights. Like, what the fuck happened there? <laughs> Right. Where that you know okay, what I mean? I got Tara doing it. I'm from Jersey, so listen, it's okay, natural Emily, for me. Emily is that Emily is that she's, Emily she's is holding that fair. back I mean, on the cursing, just so we're clear. She's <laughs> holding Emily, back. you Emily, you talk about culture. You're you're the culture editor at the Federalist. Um, what is what is is that is it a fair statement to say? Because I think a lot of people believe that there are a whole bunch of folks out there who who think that if you wear a mask, you don't support Trump. Um, we've even seen some you know, videos, empirical evidence of people who are who are shouting that somebody must be a Democrat or a liberal because they're wearing a mask. Is that is that really the reason people aren't wearing them? Um, is it a political statement, do you think, for folks on the right? Yeah, so I think it I think it is for many people on the right. You know, I shouldn't say many people. I should say there's there's a section of the right that is the hardcore Trump MAGA base. And I think for them, yes, it it is a political statement, but I think at the same time there is it's it's important to distinguish and to make that distinction between mask mandates and masks as a heavy, full-throated recommendation. You know, if I were a private business right now, I would absolutely be mandating masks in my establishment. Um, It's different when governments do it. And, you know, I think that should vary on on local levels. But I've seen... What makes that different? Just just help me. So, Tua, I can explain sort of... As a as someone on the right, um, if if a mask is going to become become a political statement for someone who's a Trump supporter, it's because they see it as a sort of resistance to um, an encroachment on civil liberties. Which is, you know, I, I've never particularly understood it because in certain moments over the past few months, the president himself, you know, he's been photographed with a mask where he said masks are important, even if it's kind of with a wink and a nod. So, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily understand that position, but I do also think, you know, I, I'm a pretty, um, I, I, I pretty much endorse the, the use of masks. I think it's, it's smart. I think more people should be doing it, but I was freaked out when I saw those pictures from Fire Island a couple of weeks ago, frankly, when I've seen pictures, um, from pride parades or protests where people aren't wearing masks that freaks me out too. And so I don't think it's just Trump supporters who are refusing to wear masks. I think there are a lot of everyday average people who um, are resistant to it. But that said, I do agree that it has become a political and a cultural symbol for the Trump base. Yes. Plain oh and gosh, simple. My favorite, Donald Trump was, was, wait, my favorite Don, part was Emily it, suggesting that gay people in Fire Island and Black Lives Matter protesters are everyday average people. I just want that on a t-shirt. Thank you. That was great. <laughs> I love that. Are they not? But let's are not they, pretend. I've Listen. been covering the protests. I mean, been really are, totally. Yes. Totally. I mean, yeah, I've, been, I've been at the White House covering the protests for weeks and I've been really moved by a lot of the average everyday people that I've encountered. So yeah, I, I completely Amen. think that's true. I know. It's just always so refreshing and I, I mean this with the highest degree of respect to you, maybe not the right as a total, but it's always just so refreshing, uh, you know, to hear complimentary facts. Um, <laughs> uh, go ahead. Sorry. Whoever else oh, was going to say something. I was just going to say that it's um, let's not act as though Donald Trump from the very beginning took the position when he had plenty of opportunity during the daily coronavirus briefings to wear a mask and tell people Mm. that, listen, 
this is what we need to do in order to stay safe. If you want to get the economy back going, if we want to get kids back into school and try to get some semblance of normalcy, this is what we need to do and lead by example. He has not done that. We saw him photographed once with a mask, Mm -hmm. sort of, kind of, when he was at a factory um, somewhere, I forget now, where where he wore it for all of like five minutes and then it was off. And then you saw the pictures of him sitting there in Miami, which is a hot spot, when he was recently on a trip, right before the Walter Reed spectacle, where he was sitting there with his arms crossed, all, you know, pissed off and everybody else around him had on a mask, being sensible. I mean, the reason why we saw so many people being flippant, not just Trump supporters, but you saw young folks, you know, the younger folks out there having a grand all time in Michigan and down, you know, down the shore. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm from Jersey. I was recently down the shore and people were out and about at restaurants and on the boardwalk, no masks because the mm-hmm. tone was set. He did not yeah. lead by example from the beginning. And that cannot go without being acknowledged. That makes you think those young people, you think those young people or those folks on Fire Island were really letting the president Wait set a second. the tone let's for be, them? Let's be clear about something. I, I obviously don't let the president set the tone for me, but in, I think... <laughs> I think we're pretty clear on that. But we have clearly set yeah. a tone tonight. <laughs> but <laughs> that is, <laughs> you know, in early March, is there? I mean, full disclosure, early March. Uh, I mean, this isn't not publicly known, but like I went on a business trip to uh, Los Angeles, got on a plane. It was just the time where people were starting to think, "Hey, is this going to be a thing?" You know, mm-hmm. I brought the hand sanitizer. No one was talking about masks. There's none of that. You know, now when I look back. Would I have done it knowing now what I what I wish I'd known then? Of course not. Now, the question is, is do we live in a society, right? And this goes back to that sort of anti-government and the extreme kind of free market anti-government worldview. It's every person for themselves. You have to inform yourself uh, and and, you know, you take your own safety and your own risk, and your own hands and be damn the world now. It, it, it was the job. I'm sorry, but it was not my job as a private citizen to know the full scope of health risks and to know what it is very clear now the federal government knew and 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 could have, by acting on it, more quickly prevented deaths, period. Oh, for sure. Full stop, for no sure. question. Now, the other thing is, though, when we get to thinking about Doing things for the greater good as somehow an infringement on civil rights. I mean, first of all, just the co-optation of the notion of civil rights in that way just I mean, I said civil liberties. Skin cro- so. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I've, I heard it too. I've heard it as a civil rights issue as well. But civil liberties either way is like, look, we require people to wear seatbelts. We don't let minors buy alcohol. We don't let minors buy cigarettes. In most states, we require. We don't people let you wear... walk down the street with your. We don't let you walk down the street with your ass uncovered either. You know? <laughs> Unless it's Fire so... Island. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> but like in most states, we require people who wear motorcycles to wear helmets, right? And it's partly it's for their own good. It's partly because if they, you know, have an accident and spill their guts all over the We don't want to have to clean it up. We have, we, <laughs> but I mean that, that our hospitals are, right? Like, I mean, there is a, there is a cost, right? Real human societal, right? And, and the idea, I mean, I guess it's just, and, and here's the, here's the positive part of all this, right? Which is, I do think that people who were getting very cynical, even in the middle sort of center of the country, were getting very cynical about government and about why government was needed. 
uh, and who said things maybe, and you know, myself included, when Trump was elected, oh, no, no, don't worry, our institutions will protect us. It turns out they won't. It turns out they're fragile. It turns out democracy is fragile. It turns out public health is fragile. It turns out facts are fragile. Journalism <laughs> is fragile. All these things are way more fragile than we thought, and they actually do need us to safeguard them, just like we need some sense of our greater good looking out for all of us to tell us things like, Oh my God, there's a pandemic com pandemic coming. Don't get on a damn plane and wear a damn mask. So then, so Emily, not to put you on and and because you've very you've come out <laughs> right out here and said that you you do support the wearing of masks. So I'm not going to put you in the in the category of of those conservatives who are against mask wearing, et cetera. But to to ask you to sort of speak for that side of the aisle. And look at the poll numbers now where the things that Sally just said are really starting to show up in polling numbers for the president. And my curiosity is, why hasn't he looked at the numbers and said, oh, shit, maybe I need to consider doing something a little differently now? We yeah. see that not just the poll numbers, but the numbers of the cases, the numbers of the deaths, the numbers of the spread going up, the poll numbers going down. Why hasn't he said, oh, maybe we need to reassess this? Yeah, I mean, something really interesting about this presidency to me has always been the way that their um, strategy in campaigns and just in general um, politics is he makes a, a strong he makes a clear calculus that it's about keeping his base happy um, and not the, not hemorrhaging any support from his base. So as long as his base remains robust, robust and doesn't, um, you know, people don't fall off from the base itself, he'll be able to push forward. And I've always found that to be an interesting aspect of this presidency because I think Donald Trump himself is uh, sort of a longtime centrist and would have been able to have a very, very different uh, time in office had he taken a different tack. But at the same time, um, you know, I think, People are, I think people in the Trump base, I think the center right in general, this has been like a perfect storm. So there was this cratering trust in institutions. And then we had that sort of combined with a really difficult, um, a, a virus that was really difficult, even for scientists. And we're still grappling with, with how to actually understand it. It's, it's kind of a difficult situation. And so we have this perfect storm. We have this really like, and, and it's basically just amounted to an explosion in distrust in institutions and the way that this has played out differently all over the country. Um, I think that's a really important aspect of this is that the president believes, and I think accurately believes, there are people, um, you know, in the interior of the country who feel that they lost business, they feel that they lost, um, you know, their livelihoods, they lost all kinds of things for a, uh, a pandemic that didn't exactly hit their neck of the woods as hard as it hit, say, New York City. Now, that may change, but I think that is it feels part like of it might calculus. be changing, changing today. Now. It's changing right now. And so and and perhaps that's why his his poll numbers are going down and keeping keeping his base happy. You know, I guess it remains to be seen if that's enough. Um, I'm going to do the most awkward pivot here uh, and say someone else, Tara, he's been trying to keep happy. Um, <laughs> Roger Stone this week. <laughs> want to change? <laughs> that was real smooth. <laughs> I did that real classy like. Um, <laughs> Roger Stone this week um, had his hmm. sentence commuted. Um, let me return to the main question. What the 
is going on? <laughs> so, so Tara, Tara. Uh, wait, we didn't I mean, did we, were we surprised? Were we surprised by? Were we surprised? Were you surprised by that, Tara? First of all, by the fact that he actually did commute Roger Stone's sentence. Uh, I was not surprised that he commuted his forty-plus-year-long friendship, uh, friends sentence no because that's what you know mafia boss type figures do when they have power um, but he didn't commute michael cohen no because michael cohen was a rat michael cohen was a rat but he also ha- he hasn't he hasn't helped paul manafort not yet not yet not yet okay. he will i i strongly believe that he will pardon um or commute the sentence of of uh manafort before Is the it end because of it. he's are you th- are you I saying that you that. think he's loyal Yes, Do you think absolutely. he's loyal to these people absolutely. or do you think they have something on him he doesn't both. want him to talk about? It's both. That's the way it works in these types of like criminal enterprises. And when you have something on someone and you don't rat on them mm-hmm. and you remain loyal, you're rewarded for it. And That's, it doesn't go much. both ways. He said yeah, as much. Yeah, yeah, Roger like Stone admitted it. Trump said, Roger Stone admitted Trump it. Said it. That's correct. And let's just not forget, Roger Stone is nobody's freaking victim. Roger Stone <laughs> is a despicable Dirty trickster, self-proclaimed, has been in the dark arts of politics and criminality for decades. And he was involved with the Russian intelligence agencies mm-hmm. to work to facilitate the hacking of the DNC and, and Hillary Clinton and pass that information on to the to the Trump campaign and lied about it. And Trump was willing to take the information. The Mueller report talks about it. We know we we're, we know from the um, from the Roger Stone trial what was going on there. This guy deserves to be in prison, and the fact that the president of the United States decided that he was going to commute his buddy and reward him for being quiet for you know to protect him from the potential crimes he committed, mm-hmm. I think is a disgrace. And I am a conservative lifelong, and I remember when conservatives used to be <laughs> about the Constitution and law and order, and there is nothing lawful and orderly about Donald. Trump's presidency, for one, and this commutation. When I worked in Capitol Hill, I personally worked for two and a half years on an effort to get two Border Patrol agents who we felt were wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for 10 years, commuted or pardoned by President Bush. And I can tell you there are thousands of people in Mm. the system who have been wrongfully convicted or wrongfully Mm. imprisoned with unfair sentences that are worthy of the presidential power of pardon and commutation. Mm. Thankfully, my border agents were able to, we were able to get a commutation for them and their lives were saved and they did not have to spend any more time in prison. Someone, so, so the president of the United States to use that power guaranteed by the constitution, no one's saying he doesn't have the power and authority to do it. He does. That's just because you can doesn't mean you should. And by him doing this with Roger Stone, it just spits in the face of so many people who work on criminal justice and all the people who go through the pardon mm-hmm. attorney and the process to try to get people worthy of these of these types of pardons and commutations. They just get thrown by the wayside because they're not politically connected and or have something on the president and didn't rat on him, quote unquote. So they, you know, they don't get that preferential treatment. I think it was despicable and an absolutely Un, uh, just a uh, um, a miscarriage of, of justice and conservatives who claim to be law and order should be ashamed of themselves for lionizing Roger fucking Stone. Hey, 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 but Tara, but Tara, but Tara, but Tara. But, but, but what about Hillary's emails? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. yeah. Sally, Sally, does there come a point? Okay. Well, you know what? You kind of make my point there. Mm. Uh, well, you don't make my point. You asked my question for mm. me. Um, does there come a point where it behooves Democrats or progressives to just sort of 
in this election year roll their eyes at something like this, say, add it to the pile, and perhaps not scream about it as much? I mean, is it is it... Is there is there a new case that's going to all of a sudden change the minds of the 35 percent of people who are going to stick with Trump no matter what? Um, does it does it does it even matter to does it even God, I sound like an idiot. Too. No, no. I got fuzz I, on my brain. It's OK. It's, but you it's, understand my listen, question. Does it do- coronavirus is is frying all of our brains. So you've made <laughs> you've made half cogent sentences out of your food hole. I think you're doing great, Clay. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You know, here's the thing. I think <laughs> the thing with Trump, right, is he, and this is incidentally something he learned from Roger Stone, um, is a master of distraction. He is very aware um, that we as human beings, and certainly in this country especially, and especially right now, have a short attention span. He bets on that. And he also is very aware that the media in particular, social media as well, but the media in particular, um, just loves the latest scandal and is, is scandal, gossip, rumor, you know, driven. And so one of the dangers with this presidency, and it is, it's, a, it's a constant danger and a constant hard calculus to make for anyone who either opposes him or even just wants to hold him accountable, is to not pounce on every single little tiny thing, right? When he, you know, makes some asinine, crass, ridiculous sort of dog bone of an attack that is really just meant to bait people, I think that is important for the Democrats to sort of keep their eye on the prize and stay above it. Stuff like this is corruption. This is this is corruption. This is a president who has habitually over time shown a disregard or outright flag- interest in flagrantly violating the Constitution and the laws, using over and over again uh, his position for his own personal power and gain, putting his interests ahead of the interests of the American people and national security over and over and over and over again, and doing so again in this instance. So this is a, this is the kind of thing that shouldn't be harped on as a, you know, gossipy, gutter sniping kind of moment, but as endemic of a broader pattern of someone who is ill-suited to frankly hold any office, but certainly not the highest office in uh, this great nation. So I, I think it's entirely, completely, <laughs> thoroughly appropriate. And it's appalling. It's appalling. Has, has he not also done a very good job of making enemies out of the people who he needs to be his enemies? I mean, has he, he's arguably been able to accuse certain relatively unbiased people in the media of being biased so much and attack them so much Mm -hmm. that an average person might not believe that it was possible for Jeremy, Jeremy Bash or, or Philip Rucker. Right. Correct. These reputable journalistic outlets who would be unbiased. An average person might not be able to even believe that Phil Rucker could be unbiased. Well, and they're not going to believe the reporting on Roger Stone and what actually happened. And and look, to your point about his base, and this, this goes to points others have made, again, I have hoped against hope 
because I believe that people are fundamentally good. I believe that, pe- that Americans are fundamentally patriotic, that are, are fundamentally um, invested in the idea of the common good. And I still hold out hope for the salvation and redemption of people who continue to support this president, that they will someday um, feel differently. But I don't think that's happening anytime soon. And I think in part it's that uh, his smearing and attacking of the media, which has all kinds of other ripple effects in uh, in the mainstream, but it, ha- it in particular ends up insulating his base from fact. And so then the the sort of hypothesis of like, well, what's the straw that's going to break their collective camel back? Uh, is there is no straw if it actually now I'm I'm straining my metaphor, but you know if the camel can't get come the straw the, because they on, work can't your, work your because, food hole there, Sally, because they can't because <laughs> there's no source that they trust that would actually report on that piece of straw, right? So. In that sense, he is really building his own sort of um, bunker, if you will, around his base. Now, I do seriously. I have to tell you, for by the way, where these stories intersect. For the longest time, I thought because I'm cynical. Tara knows this. Clay knows this. I thought, <laughs> oh, he's just going to let this virus keep going because it's killing people in like liberal cities, and it's especially killing black and brown people. He's just going to let this keep going. But now. I'm like, man, this is going to start like at a certain point, his base are going to get sick. They are well, probably Florida, already getting sick. Arizona. From, right. But the Oklahoma the rally. Why did, he Texas, cancel, right? why did he cancel the New Hampshire rally? His base, he, his supporters are going to get sick because they're the ones not wearing the masks because he told them not to. So I, at a certain point, reality is going to pierce the bubble. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast, Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love, sex, or to hedge your reproductive odds. I think women have this ability to plant these mental bombs into a man's mind. But the thing about humor is that the value of humor, it goes up. We're wired to reproduce. To them, it was a super female. It was a giant female. And they were lured into um, into trying to mate with it. The science of love is fascinating. It's a bizarre form of biohacking, really. If you have the 7R plus gene, you are more likely to be involved in an affair, yes. That's where some of the research gets really intriguing. There's so many ways to be a human. But I must say, sex between three people can get complicated. In a nutshell, the Kinsey Scale looked at two things, sexual fantasies and actual sexual behavior. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ariel Demaros, and I'm hosting a new podcast called Vice News Reports. With so much going on around the world, so many people telling you they have the definitive take on the news, we bring you to the news so you can hear it for yourself. From the newsroom that has earned more Emmy nominations than any other news team, this podcast goes where the story is, from conflict zones to the labyrinth of digital life. You've never traveled quite like this. Get the Vice News Reports podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is there a straw, Emily? Or can we just dispense our... Let's let's just dispense with the notion, like Sally says, there is no straw, and and it is... Is it a waste of time to try to change people's minds about Donald Trump being evil slash corrupt slash... I mean, is is it 
completely a lost cause, as you most know, believe, Emily? This is a really interesting question. And I actually wrote a, a story today kind of coming at it from a different angle. Um, and this is sort of like the glass half empty, glass half full experience that I think the left and the right are having during the Trump presidency. So I absolutely think that there's, there's a slice of, of Donald Trump's base that is obsequious and loyal to unquestionably to a fault um, that is incapable of admitting his wrongdoing, which there are many, and I would certainly um, rope his association with Roger Stone, period, into that. But, um, you know, I, my question is, I remember waking up conflicted about the presidency on the morning of November 9th, 2016, thinking, well, you know what, at least, at least if we have a Trump presidency, if, if the press can't do some soul searching and come out better on the other side, if they can't be shocked into a course correction after the freaking host of Celebrity Apprentice defeats a former Secretary of State for the presidency, what is going to happen? And I think what we've seen, I, I mean, I pulled this, a quote from Brian Stelter, who said, you know, this was the Sella Corridor. He, at the time, he explained Trump's victory as being, you know, basically the, the press is too insular and you have the Sella Corridor. And this was a rural roar that the media was too coastal to hear. He used the term rural roar. And instead, what what I think we've seen is the media go in the opposite direction. So while, yes, I do have- That's what Barry Weiss said this week, too. Is that not right? I mean, did she yes. say, Barry Weiss in her her resignation letter from the New York Times said sort of what you just said, which is that, that the press moved further to the left in her estimation instead of trying to find out what the people in the rural areas wanted or needed. Right. And, or she, and and Barry noted that she was hired as part of this project back at the time of the New York Times to sort of include other perspectives so that we can debate them and probably have a better, come, come out of that with a better understanding of everybody, which is something that this program does successfully um, in and of itself. But, you know, yeah, I think that's, to me, yes, absolutely there are problems with the, some parts of, of Donald Trump's base, which is not exactly the Republican base. There are a lot of, like, Rust Belt Democrats that make up that base. Um, and so it, it, is that base loyal to a fault? Absolutely. Are they insulated from facts? Absolutely. Are there certain outlets that feed that? Absolutely. But at the same time, this is a consequence of a broader, deeper issue, which is institutional distrust. And the media is a huge part of that. And there has not been a course correction. What we've seen, in fact, is the opposite. Well, so Tara, Tara, Barry Weiss, would argue herself that she in some ways got canceled um, because she was not willing or able or capable of being as, I don't know if she would make the use the term liberal. Um, I think she's, a, I think she's come across or tried to come across as a centrist, but she argued in her, I'm very much paraphrasing, argued in her resignation letter, open resignation letter, that she felt the media, the news media, and the New York Times in particular on their opinion page was trying to speak too much to the far left base and sort of placate what it was that they believed was appropriate on the far left. Is is that a valid argument that she's making? Do you think that the that some of the press has overcorrected from Trump's base and tried to be the the polar opposite, the foil to that, the mirror image to that, um, in in the news media. Um, yeah, I I think that there's some validity to that because of just how egregious the Trump presidency has been and his attacks on the media. That that was the natural counterweight to it, 
And I think there was an overcourse correction um, to some degree. And, and this isn't new, really, though. I mean, if you are right of center, it's all it's been a challenge for a long time to kind of be accepted in the mainstream media. Um, it's something that, as conservatives, we had to deal with, which is why Fox News was created, right? Um, now, Fox News has gone off the freaking deep end. And that was, um, you know, and then obviously talk radio and those things where there were other outlets uh, for conservatives. But that has all just gone like like death cult route at this point. So you think that this canceling is a course is a counterweight? I think it's it's because it's 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 complicated because I think that there are I I don't really know much about Barry Weiss. I followed this 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 a little bit, kind of on the periphery. But I understand, but not that, even her story yeah, only, but, under, but generally, but, right? But in general, I kind of feel like there there has always been an uphill battle for conservative voices to be taken seriously in mainstream media, and then there was an opportunity for that at, at like at one point. But then when Donald Trump started, it, it didn't take long. Like even CNN was making an effort to try to be. Um, as balanced as possible in the beginning of the Trump presidency, right? And then once Charlottesville happened, it kind of changed everything where we saw that Trump was willing to, you know, leading up to Charlottesville, like in the first six, seven months of the Trump presidency, we saw that he was willing to say and do things that no one else was willing to say or do that were so outside the norms where, you know, media wouldn't say that he was lying. They would go out of their way not to kind of call it what it was because mm-hmm. it was so against, like, the norms of things. But then it just, once the Washington Post decided to start tracking the lies and and falsehoods and it became so overwhelming, a lot of activist journalism was born because by making a judgment that the president of the United States is lying, I mean, it's factual that he's lying, but now you're considered an activist journalist if you point that out. There were just so many things going on that were that were so egregious that you I just think that people who were watching this who know and who knew hmm. the facts, you know, were just how we gotta call a spade a spade. So but when it comes to the opinion side of things, you know, the 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 um because the reporting side versus the opinion side of newsrooms are two different animals, and some would argue that they've meshed into one. It's complicated. It's I think I just think it's complicated. Sally, can they get their reputation back then if they have become activist journalists in some way? Will they be able to return to unbiased journalism and be trusted? That's a wildly loaded question, Clay. It presumes that there was such a thing in the first place, right? And, 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 you know, look, I teach in a school of journalism. There's an active debate, and there always has been, about, you know, is there such a thing as unbiased journalism, right? What does that mean? If we all bring our biases to the table— uh, you know, we are all human beings with perspectives. Is it possible to leave those at the door? Um, or do you name them or how do you address that? And, and on top of that, by the way, there's a whole set of, uh, you know, layered onto that conversations about in particular race and gender, right? The assumption that, oh, well, okay, you can be quote unquote unbiased or neutral, uh, you know, if, if you are, a more majority, if you represent the majoritarian voices and perspectives, but that, you know, can you be a person of color objectively, quote unquote, objectively reporting on the Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera? Those have been 
historically, those are conversations that have gone on for a very, very long time. Um, Is there and an I answer do think, to it? Well, uh, let me just back up a second and say, and look, I am no fan of canceling anyone. Um, I happen to believe that uh, as a left, you have to uh, act on, inculcate, and in effect, make the road by walking the values you want to see in the world. And when you say you are inclusive, that means inclusive of everyone, including inclusive of people mm-hmm. you don't agree with. And conflating uh, people's ideas, people, and even including people's questions and confusions and doubts and, and compl- conflating ideas with identity is deeply dangerous. And also, by the way, assuming that those of us, wherever we may fall on a spectrum of enlightenment, assuming it's some kind of linear progression, that those of us who are further down along the road were somehow born there and didn't have a process of learning, growing, changing, where people were generous to us when we asked dumb questions or said dumb things or hurtful things. So so that's sort of where I come at. From this from a values perspective. Now, I do think what happened, and this isn't unique to media, because I do want to point out, by the way, there's, there were massive uproars about when the New York Times, for example, uh, you know, did deep dives into Trump voters and even around Charlottesville, around white nationalists and so forth, and arguments that they were coddling them. I mean, bear in mind, some of what led to Barry Weiss's resignation was the Tom Cotton op-ed arguing for more violent crackdowns on Black Lives Matter protesters. So one could make the case either way for where journalism has gone. I do think what's happened in society is that part of the reaction to Trump and to the, well, frankly, for lack of a better word, culture shock he represented to, uh, I think, a majority of Americans who had assumed however imperfectly or haltingly that, you know, that long arc of history was going to bend toward justice, inevitably, eventually, uh, his, the fact that he could represent a set of values so overtly that were so odious and offensive in every sense of that word to the values that I, that most of us, I think, hold dear and had kind of taken for granted. I think the kind of cultural writ large reaction to that it could have gone two ways, right? It could have gone the, wow, we have more work to do than we realized. Let's have more conversations. Let's be more open. Let's, you know, as Anand, my friend Anand Garatharas has said, let's make sure that, you know, there there is room among the woke for the still waking. Like, let's be gentle oh, and say generous. That again. Let's be say that room again. among Who said that? Anand Garadhara said there must be room among the woke for the still awakening. And it's this notion that we can still be gentle and generous with each other. And on the other hand, there was, and I understand this, an impulse to sort of um uh, double down and be even more emphatic and clear in defining yourself or your tribe as not that, not Trump, not mm-hmm. whatever that, to to um, uh, become more uh, clarion, I guess, in in a set of views right. and values. And, and, and it, that can easily slide into more so rigid, et cetera. So I think it's, it's, that's what's happening in the culture at large, and it's playing out in all kinds of different facets. Um, and it's not just a media-generated phenomenon. What's interesting to, well, this question may 
combat that last sentence because what's interesting to me as we've had these episodes over the past three or four weeks, I have yet to speak with anyone as a guest on this podcast who has been pro-cancel culture, who has been in favor of canceling people. Everyone who we've spoken to and, and, and the producers have tried to pull people on as guests who would defend the cancellation of X, Y, or Z. But no one has spoken out and said, yes, we believe cancel culture is the right way to handle this. And yet, despite all the people who I speak to in my life and all the people who I've spoken to on this podcast saying, no, cancel culture is not really the way we should be handling this, or at least not the best way to handle it all the time, still, it seems like every day, Emily, we see another story about someone who is being canceled or a a team that's being renamed or a school that's being renamed. It seems as if, though, despite everyone telling their family and friends, no, I don't think canceling is the right way to handle this all the time, we're still doing it. We're still talking. We're still seeing it in the news constantly. And it makes me wonder, Emily, was is was Barry Weiss in some ways right about the fact that Twitter is leading the conversation? That are there are these things happening because there are 600 people on Twitter who are calling for the cancellation while the rest of us are sitting here and saying, maybe we shouldn't jump that far. It's, it's is so Twitter funny. leading the show? The way that you, you ended that question is perfect because as you were um, leading up to the question, I was thinking, it's Twitter, it's Twitter, it's Twitter. And I've written about this many <laughs> times. You can actually draw a direct line from Twitter to a lot of these so-called cancellations. And it's, it's fascinating that you say it's difficult to actually get anybody um, to come on and defend cancel culture. And I think you're right that it's that's partially because it is limited to a, a small group of people that have a megaphone. Um, and because of the way the, the, because of the state of the journalism industry, a lot of these stories where reporters are kind of lingering on Twitter all day um, get amplified because it's, it's click culture and it's a good story. And I remember a couple of years ago, this is one of my favorite examples. There is an article um, in a, a fairly uh, major publication about millennials having woke complaints about friends, millennials being too woke for the TV show Friends, and read the article. And I looked at what their evidence was for this. And it was literally a few tweets. And I went on Twitter and I used the, the well, search now, function. Well, now, hold on. I, I turned around and watched Friends in my later years, now at, at 40, and thought, damn, that show was a lot more homophobic than I realized right. it was. Everything now, that might have been that right. been why right. in the 90s I was scared to death to come out mm-hmm. because it was being made. But you know what? I got called faggot on the regular, and I survived and never asked anybody to be canceled, and I still watch Friends today. So is it a generational thing? Yes, and, and I think it, I think it's a generational thing, but I think it's also like the, I, I don't doubt that that's true at all. I think what's interesting though is the way that when the media amplifies these um, controversies or like picks up a few tweets, and I think the tweets were much more extreme than what you're just describing. They were beyond the the sort of complaints about homophobia that was, you know, in the 90s, it was obviously just a a different thing. But um, unfortunately, but you, 
the way the media amplifies it, then you have people in boardrooms who believe they need to immediately be responsive to this. Um, and so they jump on it because they, they see these, you know, tweets or social media, small social media campaigns from a, a smaller group of people get amplified by blogs, or maybe they're just seeing their own social media fle- feeds flooded by these complaints, period. And that's where you see um, some of these you know, so-called cancellations or decisions happening is because people in boardrooms and PR departments get really nervous. And I don't think they fully understand the scale of what they're dealing with is smaller than, than what it seems. So Who can just I, breathed heavy? Oh, well, that was me, Clay. I'm <laughs> a heavy Sally? breather, Sally. Um, yet another thing my 11-year-old complains tell me, about. Tell me what you're thinking about. But, tell you know, me what you're thinking. Here's the thing. Again, hmm, given my values and where my brain is at in that, you know, I, I when I want to, I, I believe every moment should be a learning opportunity and that the only way I, I'm a social change activist, I want people to change. I want people to grow and deepen and uh, progress along a set of, you know, more shared values of mutual respect and dignity for others and for themselves. And I think you only get there by creating opportunities for dialogue and learning and engagement. All of that being said, I do think I want to sort of challenge your premise, right? It's not that you can't find people who would support quote unquote cancel culture. Cancel culture, by the way, is a phrase that is used by opponents. So it's sort of like, right? I mean, uh, you know, it's it's hard to find then supporters who would maybe use that phrase. But even then, what is true is that most of those of us, for justified or unjustified reasons, who are whimpering about it, um, are the people who have platforms, who have a certain amount of notoriety, who at this stage and who are scared of being canceled, are, have fear that they have more to lose than to gain. And and what is true is that this is a we can say it is more. Um, you know, maybe more toxic, maybe more amplified, maybe more unforgiving. We happen to live, again, I think that has more to do with the moment we're in and the fear uh, of this sort of um, deeper resentment that's mobilizing a Trump base that people feel is kind of unyielding and hopeless. And, And in the face of that, people saying, you know, to your example, if I get called faggot, maybe, maybe, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I would have sucked it up. And you know what? My, you know, the next generation, freaking good on them if they don't suck it up. And that this is a next generation, every generation, every group of young people is always a little more unforgiving, a little more, uh, you know, strident. And they have some new tools that amplify it in in more powerful and potent ways. But in, a, but in fairness, tools. the people who say, but the people who say that what this really is is, uh, you know, people on the margins holding the mainstream accountable. There is some truth to that. That doesn't mean, again, I personally like it in every single instance, and I and I, I don't bucket the stridency sometimes, and the personalized nature of it is hard for me. <laughs> it has been very hard for me, but. I also appreciate accountability and and that the mainstream sometimes has to move and shift and even get uncomfortable for the margins to find voice and power. But my tool personally to stop being, to not be offended by the word faggot was to not be offended by it because it took the power away from those who used it against me when I said, 
I'm not going to be bothered by that. I don't care. You do say what you want to say. I'm not suggesting that's the way that everyone needs to handle it. Certainly, there are people who aren't able to handle it in that way. And those who continue to use it aggressively should be stopped. Absolutely. But I'll, I'll, I'll pivot by saying, Tara, when, when I, I did this little show called um, Celebrity Apprentice, <laughs> which is my least <laughs> proud moment in my life right now. I didn't mind it back then. But, um, and while I was on it, um, my, one of my co-cast members, a uh, very good friend, Arsenio Hall, um, while we were talking one day, I used a phrase that he jumped back out and said, whoa, 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 you can't use that phrase. That phrase has a lot of racial connotation to it, and it's a very offensive phrase. Now, I grew up in the South. I had no idea that this phrase had racial connotations to it. But since I grew up here around plenty of racists, I thought, oh, shit, maybe I, maybe it, it probably does. He told me the story. He explained to me why it was um, racially insensitive, and I have never again used it. You used it about 10 minutes ago. Call a spade a spade. Oh. And... I now listen. I'm not. I, uh, I just. I couldn't help but think and kind of had a have a knee jerk reaction when you said that. Oh crap! Wait a second. I thought that was wrong. Maybe it's not. But I guess the question that I want to ask Tara is not to you. I'm not putting you on the spot. Yeah. I. I. To be I'm, honest, I didn't even know that that had a racial connotation. I'm from New Jersey. I've so. looked it up. <laughs> I've looked it up. Maybe it does. Some people say it does. Some people say it doesn't. Yeah, but I thought as you were me. saying it. Oh shit! If I had said that. Would I have gotten a lot of backlash for it? Would I have gotten in a lot more trouble for saying that? You know than what? Might? Here's the thing. I think context matters in a lot of this. Context mm-hmm. matters. And um, people, you know, get triggered about by certain things um, a little too easily, I think. And the, the context of it doesn't like it isn't taken into account. And I think that that matters. We have to be very careful with hashtag activism. Um, because it's very convenient to, you know, go on Twitter or Instagram and put these things in a hashtag and then people get canceled because of it. And it's like, wait, well, hold on. You know, there, like I said, these things are a lot more nuanced oftentimes. Now, I mean, if it's flat out blatant stuff, you can't go around, you know, calling people the N word or stuff like that, you know, or something like there's no context for that. But I just think that we need to, in order to like in the situation that you, the example you used with Arsenio explaining to you, because you weren't aware, right. he explained and he did it to explain, you. And right, he wasn't mad right. at all. Because the context of it, it wasn't like you were running around with a, a Confederate flag and saying right. like, you know, whatever. I don't know. There was, a, you but know. But he handled it in a very, you're right. You're absolutely right. He handled it handle in a way it, right. that I would hope that us as a society would have, we as a society would handle it more. That's right. Which is, Wait a second. Explain, listen, learn. Yeah. Because I don't think we listen to each other enough um, on certain things where we have differences. Uh, you know, a lot of it is just not not knowing. And then, obviously, again, we're not talking about the more nefarious, obvious examples of of some things that are just totally unacceptable and offensive. But on some things like that, um, it just takes an ex- explanation. You know, let me explain to you why. And then you're like, oh, shit. Okay, you know what? I'm right. not going to talk. I'm not going to say that again. And you appreciated that dialogue. And I'm sure you and Arsenio are still good friends to this day. He didn't cancel you. Yes. He but didn't go run to a where, producer and tell you to kick you right. off the show. But right. like, that's exactly. where I will say, and this is where I can honest to God, I can tie myself up in knots uh, because it, it, it there is a slippery slope kind of conversation. So like, you know, um, and I am 
I mean, I gave a TED talk on the context matters part of like, it doesn't matter. If you call me a hot dyke, I'm not offended, right? If you call me a fucking dyke, I probably am, right? Context matters. <laughs> but, but like, okay, so let's say there's a professor who, you know, used the phrase in a derogatory way, fucking dyke. Probably, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm a pretty, you know, engagement prone person, but that's a, to me, that's a, maybe a more cut and dry case of like, hey, wait a second. You know, you're, well, he's in a you're not creating, you're in a position of right. power. I don't believe that speech is the same thing as, you know, a, a threat to safety and that, you know, people, that speech makes people unsafe and so forth. But I also think you're in a position of power and you are supposed to create a welcoming, inclusive environment. And I could see where that'd be problematic. Let's, let's take, for example, a professor using the N-word, right? And, and, and again, context matters, you know, even for the word dyke and so forth. But let's say that we said that's problematic. Okay. What if it's a professor who is then arguing that, uh, you know, against passing? I mean, we finally, the Supreme Court actually said you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in terms of hiring. But let's say it was a professor who was arguing that you could, and here's why, that the government should discriminate, and here's why. Well, that's interesting because it's, it is, in effect, making an I, an, an I, putting forth an idea that is premised on the subjugation of queer people. And so in effect, you're not calling someone a fucking dyke, but you're, you know, it is, it's the like idea incarnation of that. But is that something that should be banned? I don't think so, but it's a very interesting, I can see where not if it becomes it's an academic exercise, but, but you not see if it's what an I mean. academic no, no, no. exercise. But not if it's an academic exercise. I mean, what if that is their actual belief, right? In other words, my point is, what if you have a professor who is their actual belief and their scholarship is that it's wrong to be gay? Right? Then it's up to the institution of power. Yeah, but it's up. If right. they don't have the position of power to actually do anything about it, and they are simply expressing what many other people might consider to be ignorant, but they are only expressing an opinion, then perhaps somebody might say, well, let them express their opinion. It's not like they can change the law. It doesn't matter. I'm actually not coming down on it one that. side or the other. Distance. I'm just saying I see where it's a sl I see where it's complicated, right? To go Definitely. from, yeah. No, I was going to say that's actually like the slippery slope phrase is the perfect one. And this example, I think, actually is really instructive. Um, I, I think it's one of the one of the best examples we could use here because you said like it, it kind of shows to me how we've been able to, from my perspective as a conservative, there's been some expanded definitions of particular words. I mean, even the word like hate, the word like violence, um, they're expanded to encompass a lot of people. And, you know, for instance, the book. White fragility teaches that essentially everybody is racist. It's a matter of correcting it and teaching it. And that's a bestseller right now. Um, and so I'm not saying that's wrong necessarily, but I'm saying when we, um, the, some of these definitions have been massively expanded. And so um, if this professor is a Christian who isn't teaching that you know, let's say same-sex marriage, let's say he's not teaching that same-sex marriage is immoral, but believes same-sex marriage as a Christian is immoral. That's a that's where this conversation starts to get really interesting because now we have to say, like, the way some of these definitions have been expanded by the left, does he pose a threat to the safety of students on campus by believing that? 
absolutely, as somebody who has worked um, with college students and, and on campuses, the answer to that would be yes. Some students would say, by virtue of him believing that, the answer is yes. And so this is where we get into the conversation about what actually constitutes bigotry, and we can't even agree on that anymore. And but if he's being penalized problem. for his belief, if he's being penalized simply for his belief, is that no different than what this entire country was founded on in the first place, which was people should have the freedom to believe what they want to believe. As long as it's yeah. not infringing on other people's rights, right? Well, and you may well, not their like belief what they may, believe. Their belief may infringe upon your right. How may, so? If they're they, not they exercising They may believe it. your rights should be infringed, but they're not actually taking them away. They may believe that but, I shouldn't be allowed to get married as a gay man, but... but they're not doing it. Right, They're not that's, stopping. That's the that's the um, you know the right. You have a right in this country to be a bigot. You just don't have a right to be. Right. You don't have a right to exercise it, exercise it on other people and deny them their rights. So that oh. I think is the difference. Right, but that's and the, that's line, the, the line between them. Right. And 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 yeah, here's right. the thing we to me is also what the bigot is right. But also the assumption is right. I mean, part of this to me it actually goes to redemption. And the idea that people can evolve and grow and change in their thinking. And that's the, to me, that's the scariest part of any of these conversations, wherever we draw the line, and it is, I think, hard to sometimes draw it, is this underlying assumption that, oh, well, if people, people, readers, students, if they are exposed to a set of ideas that they, that, that that that's it game over right as opposed to that our beliefs our values are enduring and and deep and resilient enough that in fact they can be exposed to challenging ideas and in fact that that's often how you how you challenge them right i mean there's there's this interesting work that um an organization called the western state center has done on challenging white supremacy uh in high schools because you know, now, like, I'm, we're talking far-right ideology stuff is just way more available to kids, you know, dicking around on the internet, right? And kids who want to be provocative anyway and are trying on all kinds of, you know, crazy ideas and maybe moving toward them, moving away from them, we don't know. But their whole approach, their whole toolkit that they train educators on is that if a kid brings up some, you know, parrots some far-right ideology either repeats it or even asks a question about it or sort of something like that. Everything in our culture right now says shut it down, right? Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, that kid maybe should get sent to the principal's office or expelled or what and and their their whole methodology and approach and training for educators is no in fact, like have the conversation. Here's how to have the conversation. Like you can't we can't challenge dangerous ideas if we don't talk about them. I because agree. otherwise you just push them into hiding, just right? Push them away. And it suggests that our that our core values are more and our, our central, frankly, progressive, uh, you know, civil libertarian, inclusive democratic values are more fragile than they actually are. Again, though, I think that we think that they are right now because they feel so fragile because we ended up with President Trump. So I understand right, but so, so the moment for, we're in. For example, to that to that end, I think that brings it right back to what Tara was sort of saying earlier, which was, you know, that this is perhaps a bit of an overcorrection because we didn't realize that this shit was so bad right. until Trump became president. Yep. Mm -hmm. so, so I know I didn't. If we if we just if we if it's now come to the surface, if it's if the the shit has risen to the to the top of the lake <laughs> and we can see it. 
if we choose to simply overcorrect and cancel it and try to push it away again and ignore or or silence those people who disagree, do we not simply do exactly what we did back in the 60s by silencing people who had these... I probably shouldn't have gone there because I don't have my facts in front of me. But do do we not essentially just silence these for another 20 or 30 years until they bubble up again if we just cancel folks um, and overcorrect because we've seen the problem? Is Is it not better simply to address it without canceling it this time. Absolutely. You don't want to become what you despise. And by canceling uh, the other side because you disagree or you find it offensive um, is a very illiberal concept. So I think that, um, again, back to what I said, context matters. To Sally's point, you shouldn't just be, you know, if a kid is in a school and they're bringing up like white power um, uh, ideology, you don't necessarily suspend them from school and say, get the hell out of here unless they're threatening violence or something and they're a danger. But you have the conversation, find out what, you know, well, what the what's going on here? If not in an academic environment, then where? Um, and then you have to just, I think a lot of it is common sense and you need to look at each situation and approach it that way as opposed to just um, broad brushing and that's it. You know, we're going to we're going to silence everyone. And and that's the end of it. I just again, I just really, really think context matters and listening. We got to wrap it up here with our quick fire round where we do take questions from our listeners. You can send them into us at Politicon on Twitter and Instagram at Politicon or you can email them to podcasts at Politicon dot com. We have um, a few for each of you, uh, but I'll give you yours first, Sally. Ian from Austin. From marijuana to Medicare for all, is Biden letting down progressives? Um, that presumes the progressives had any expectations of Biden. I, 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 I look at, I look at Biden as, um, you know, uh, like he's the. Anything he does at this point, right? So that, you didn't have any expectations. I didn't. I mean, I'm sorry, but like the guy is a classic corporate big bank centrist. So anything he does that tips a you know a hat toward the sort of populist, inclusive, progressive moment that I think our country is in, and certainly that the base of Democrats, but also a lot of people, I think, you know, sort of middle of America folks who kind of have lost interest in both parties because they just don't think the parties fight for them. I've for a long time thought that we're in a realignment where we're moving away from left, right, and instead toward a kind of populist versus elite. And it explains, for instance, the phenomenon where somewhere from 10 to 15 percent of Bernie Sanders voters went on to vote for Trump, right? They're just kind of people who are disillusioned with the idea of both parties only working for the corporate elites. And so anytime Biden does anything, and he actually has done a number of things. Yeah, I wish he'd done more on Medicare for All and a marijuana and a bunch of other things, but he's done a number of things that show he is being moved. And again, it goes back to our conversation. I believe people can change, right? I believe people can move. I don't think politicians lead countries, right? Politicians have to reflect the times that they're in. And so they should be responsive to the the mood and the momentum of the nation. And I'm encouraged to see him doing that. Okay, and there, our last one for you, Sally. Jess from St. Louis asks, 
is it okay to break up with someone over politics? It's an advice column now, apparently. Well, why did you even date the person if you didn't agree on politics? Isn't that like the first <laughs> How question? How dare you that even give them up? a chance if they disagree with I you? I mean, I gotta tell you, I used to like, I used to really, really puzzle over Mary Madeline and James Carville. But you know, now if you really, really wanna get me, you go, you know, George Conway, Kellyanne. Like, what I was about to say, there. I was about to say, Mary, how, and Mary Madeline, and James Carville are nothing that even compared to those two. Possible? Like, how do you? <laughs> what is? I'm sure there's a story, and we'll hear the story, and you know. But look, if politics isn't important to you, then no, of course not. If politics is important to you, uh, you know, then I would imagine again, it comes up on the first date. Um, I, I, I think that's the level where it's not like. I don't think breaking up with someone is canceling them uh, or refusing to engage. You get to, you know, kind of have your own little protective bubble uh, in who you date and sleep with. Uh, and it's okay <laughs> to just date and sleep with people who, you know, reinforce your worldview while they're reinforcing other parts of you. Anywho. Hey! Um, <laughs> Sally Cohn. <laughs> I'm going to hit you with two real quick, Tara. Um Although I hope I can uh, pronounce this name. I'm assuming it's Johan um, from Seattle. If Trump loses this election, will he run in 2024? <laughs> no. There you go. He doesn't. He okay, didn't want. No, that's yeah. that's, no. that's what we call quick fire, yeah, girl. No, he, may, he, <laughs> he won't run in 2024, but uh, they're, they're obviously grooming Don Jr. or Ivanka or the rest of the clan there for a future in politics. If um, well, she does want to find something new, doesn't she? Oh my she? gosh, she. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to go <laughs> we'll there with that. her. We'll leave but, that yeah, for another time. But I would, I would say that just you know, um, hoping that Trump loses. Obviously, I am dedicated fully to making sure that happens on November third, and then trying to rebuild whatever is left of the Republican Party after this disaster but well that leads me to my next question for you <laughs> but ben be on the lookout for the rest of them ben from charleston asks if trump isn't a real republican who's fit to lead the party well um trump is not a real republican uh he's not a conservative he is a you know he's trump it's it's trumpism um, unfortunately, there have been so many members of the Republican Party who've made the decision to sell their souls and their beliefs and their principles down the river in order to um, to uh, be in the cool kids club with the person in power at the time because they felt that that's what they needed to do. Obviously, politicians are single seekers of reelection, and they're going to do what they need, what they think they need to do to stay in office first. That's the cynical view. Um, but it's gotten to. Is the there anyone that you see? Uh, there are a couple people, I think, who have um, not completely sold themselves to the point where they're so it's so hypocritical for them to even try and come back. Uh, that would be the John Kasichs of the world, um, obviously Mitt Romney. Um, I even think Paul Ryan. Do they have a chance to win a primary? In, in 2024? Um, I, I think that depends on a lot of how the the country responds to Trump after he loses. Uh, there's going to be a lot, there's going to be a major reckoning. There's going to be a lot of soul searching within the Republican Party because Trumpism is not going away. 
So do Ben Sass and Nikki Haley have enough? I think Nikki Haley has debased herself to the point that she has no shot whatsoever with mainstream Republicans. Maybe with the Trump base, she's made her decision that that's the train she wants to get on. Um, but Ben Sass again, not a profile in courage. I'm disappointed by him. He, you know, at times there were glimmers of hope, but then when he was in a primary, he went silent and decided to, uh, you know stay, uh, kiss the ring. And now that he's not in a primary anymore, he's been a little more outspoken. I I just don't have any respect for people like that. Either you believe in what you believe or you don't. So I think there's a couple people. Um, Paul Ryan, I think even has an opportunity to possibly rehab the party. He got out in enough time with his integrity still intact. So, um, there's, there's some glimmers of hope out there, the Larry Hogan's of the world, et cetera. Um, so we'll see though. It's definitely going to be a challenge. Okay, Emily, I'm going to scrap the ones that we had sent in for you because we got a very interesting one that was emailed in just as the podcast, as we've been recording. Jane from Portland, Oregon is breaking some news for us here. Uh, Brad, um, Parscale has been fired as Donald Trump's um, campaign manager, demoted at least. Um, so, so, I'm sorry, um, I, Emily. I can't help it, my boss. <laughs> oh, we saw that coming. So, Emily, Jane... Emily Jane from Portland, Oregon wants to know, will Bill Stepien be a better campaign manager than Barstow? <laughs> um, you know, it's it's tough to say. I think there's so much discontent um, in Trump circles about what Parscale was doing towards the end of his tenure there. Um, and you know, the, the Trump circles tend to be, and this is the way he's always run his businesses, I mean, they tend to be really cutthroat and competitive, and there's a lot of infighting, um, even when the president says there's not. So it's really hard to say because it's hard to know what the truth is behind stories about various people's competencies. Um, So I I don't know. I do think that it's probably it was probably a a good moment for the for the campaign to shift and and change and go in another direction, if even for sort of like internal cohesion and to to have somebody that everybody's. you know, okay with working for. Um, at so that you point. think they'll go in a different direction? <laughs> I don't think they're going to totally pivot 180. No, I think just having f- fresh leadership is probably like this is why we see a lot of turnover. honey. If they turned one degree at all, <laughs> much less 180, one <laughs> no, degree. They won't. I, 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 mean, I, don't think, I think that's the thing, right? They won't. It, it's about you know digging deeper into the trench, and I think they think that's the the smart strategy here. But there's a lot of turnover um, in this administration because the president is just keeps his keeps his people in, in stiff competition with each other, which leads to a lot of infighting. And I think that's why they need these leadership changes fairly frequently, um, just to keep, you know, people with someone they can actually can actually exert authority over others. Okay. Tara, you're we know you I know you're um helping out the Lincoln Project for this election Indeed. and are very actively involved in uh some of the most incredible ads I've seen of the ones you guys are putting out. And that's on either either party. Thank you. Um, so uh, so those are pretty impressive. Um, we your, put an ad out on Brad Parscale, by the way. That was... Uh, did you? Oh, you had it ready. Did. Had we, it in the can. Maybe, of, maybe you have a reason. Um, they may re-up it, but this was a few weeks ago um, after the um, the Tulsa disaster where... You ah, know, yes. That, and and I, actually, I think it was before Tulsa, to be honest, where I forgot what Brad did. And, uh, oh, it was the story. It was the, the the cover story about him and how he has Ferraris and these mansions and how he's made so much money and become a multimillionaire off the back of Donald Trump's campaign. 
And, you know, Trump doesn't like anyone having more shine well, than him. his paycheck just got decreased. Yes, I guess he's going to have so. to sell one of them Ferraris now. <laughs> but, yes. Honestly Speaking with Tara? Yes, that's um, the comes podcast. out on what day? It comes out usually on Thursdays. Um, it, it, it usually, usually on Tuesday or Thursday. It, the, 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 um... News cycle has been so crazy, but um, right. but people can uh, can find it everywhere. Honestly speaking, with Tara, everywhere podcasts are downloaded, and at honestly underscore Tara, indeed, yes, uh, on on all the the all the social medias. I'm so bad at social. Yeah, media. it's on Twitter. You can find it, and we'll make on sure Twitter, uh, we'll make yes. sure that you're you're tagged on all of our political yes. stuff as well. Yes. Honestly underscore Tara. That's right. And of course, we see you on CNN all the time. Thank you. Um, so, Emily, where where can we we can read your stuff on the Federalist? Anything that we should be looking forward uh, to to hearing from you anytime soon? You know, I would just um, encourage people to check out our YouTube channel because we've been really working to put content there. Everybody has a you know feels like they have more time to fill these days, and so we're bringing a lot of long form conversations. Um, you know, podcasts are great for that kind of thing. With thinkers, you just did an interview with. Ted Cruz, right? That's right. Yeah, we just we just did an interview with uh, Ted Cruz and Michael Knowles, and you know, I, I got the senators' feelings on some of the big government mentality that I think is creeping into the Republican Party, um, TikTok, and China, and all that good stuff. So uh, I, I would recommend our YouTube channel. I think there's a lot of good long form stuff, substantive conversations going on there. Um, but otherwise, yeah, all of my social media is just the very boring um, at Emily Jashinsky on Twitter and Instagram. Um, so that's that's where you can find me. Well, we will look. And Emily Jashinsky and Tara Setmeyer and this Sally Cohn, who's already gone to bed on us. Thank you. <laughs> this was this was really an incredible discussion, and I appreciate it so much. Um, I appreciate y'all who have sent in questions as well, and those who are listening. Please don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe, all the the exciting um, verbs that I'm asking you to do for this podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, again, thank you again to Emily Jasinski and to Tara Setmeyer and Sally Cohn. And we will be back next week to try to figure out how the heck are we going to get along. On September 17th, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California, and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast, Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted, and the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you can hear me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.